so good to be back. Um, man, I so wish my parents would have taken my tonsils out sooner. <laughs> um, I want to say thanks to um, a few people before we, we keep moving into the, the, our time of worship today. I want to say thanks. I know he's not here, but I know he'll probably be watching later. I want to say thanks to Pastor Charles for bringing the word. Man, like... I think if there's any two messages that we should meditate on and hear over and over, it would have been those two so timely. I also want to say thank you to Pastor Chad and, um, and Pastor JJ, who last week, in my opinion, knocked it out of the park. It was, it was a great message. Um, it was absolutely awesome. Um, before we get moving again, I want to remind us as a church, we are praying by faith and we're going to act by faith to give generously in our continued partnership with African New Life. As a quick reminder, um, a year and a half ago, we felt the Lord putting it on our hearts to raise $150,000 so we can plant a church in the northeast province of Rwanda. And as Pastor Seth and I were there, we felt like the Lord was pushing us into a deeper partnership with them. And as we came back, we prayed, talked with the elders. And we feel convinced that we are to kind of be responsible for that northeast part of Rwanda in terms of helping African New Life plant more churches in order to bring um, water and, and food and schools and, and to sponsor children in that area. And so we are now again raising money to plant another church in there. And it's not just about planting a church, as you heard Pastor Charles. It's about opening up channels to sponsor children and to equip families that really need a lot of things. And so um, this Sunday and a few other Sundays to come, if you guys want, I want to encourage you to pray and ask the Lord what that amount would be for you to give generously to Africa New Life. There's um, two boxes right there in that corner of the room and right there in the back. And if you don't have a check or you don't remember what a check is or a dollar is anymore, um, you can give online. We have that option there for you as well. Um, now I would like to ask uh, Pastor Nima Reza to come on up. Um, and want to share, yeah, let's give him a hand. Um, these are some of those bittersweet moments in the ebb and flow of ministry because we trust that the Lord knows what the Lord is doing and, and he knows that all things have a season. And um, when I first got here, I was like, Lord Jesus, please send me someone that I can get in the trenches and do ministry with. And Nima was my first hire, and um, a funny story that I still remember to this day, and it still makes me kind of feel weird, was I was a new kid on the block, right? Like, I didn't know any other pastors in Austin, and um, Nima applied for a position that I ended up hiring uh, someone else for, because I saw a different uh, fit for Nima, but we went to Jack Allen's, and I'd never been to Jack Allen's, and lo and behold, uh, Nima was working for another church at the time, and a few tables over was the lead pastor of the church that Nima was working for. And I was just like, oh my gosh, what a great precedent I'm setting in this city. I am poaching from other churches. Um, but the Lord knew what he was doing. And this man right here, if you've gotten to know Nima, he is a man that is sensitive to the spirit. He is wise. He has a real discerning ear. He has spoken timely words and timely warnings and timely encouragement to us as a staff, specifically to me. I don't know if we could have gone through the last three years without your voice being there. Truly mean that. Uh, Nima was one who sees the cup always half full, full of hopeful optimism. Always the we can do this, let's go ahead, let's plow forward. And I'm going to miss that. And, you know, I really, really am. And he's a guy who's learned the balance of speaking um, grace and truth together. And they entered the season, Nima and his wife Cheryl, um, into another season of life um, where they're going to be doing um, real estate type of stuff. And it's actually really sweet because they're going to have a heart of ministry. So, Nima, I would just, I know I told you, we're probably, I'm just probably going to talk this, but I really want you to share your heart a little bit about, like, what this church has done and what you see and and how we can be praying for you. You want to use my mic? You can come. Uh, I love you, but not that much. Um, just really briefly, so we, my wife and I had started feeling uh, God stirring in our hearts probably about six months ago or something, and we didn't know exactly what that meant or looked like. We had an inkling. Uh, long story short, one of the things that we do besides 
vocational ministry as we we invest and our investing really kind of took off in a way that started drawing me into uh, more and more of a need for me to uh, put my time and effort into that. So uh, prayerfully, uh, through a lot of processing and conversations, we felt like that God was moving us and me in that direction, uh, along with my wife, who'd already been doing it full time. Uh, but prior to me coming to Austin Oaks Church, uh, I wanted to share really briefly how we landed here is we had been talking to other churches throughout the country, and um, we had some friends over for dinner from Austin Oaks Church who had been sharing a little bit about what God was doing here, which led me and my wife to connect with Brandon and his lovely wife, and we just felt led to come here because we believed in the vision and mission of the church, and, and my heart, as Brand, Pastor Brandon knows and our staff knows, is to really uh, build out the church. And I really believe that this church uh, specifically is positioned to do that, uh, was, and definitely is, and there's a lot more qualified people on staff now than when I first started to help carry that baton. Um, Lastly, one of the things when I was sharing with staff, I said, hey, please feel free to ask me any questions you have about anything. And somebody said, hey, well, where are you going to be going to church? This is our church. We're, we're going to keep coming here. My family loves it. So we're just, we're grateful for Pastor Brandon and this church. So thank you. Yeah. Yeah, yeah Cheryl and Nima, um, even though they're in a different business, in different venture, they will be full-time ministry in that because if you know them, they're always looking for ways to tell people about Jesus and invite them to church, invite them into community. So I have no doubt in my mind that the Lord is going to use you guys in significant ways, and we're, we're excited for that. So church, let's thank the Rezas for their service. And if you would join me in prayer as we we pray over them in this new season. Lord, I thank you for Nima. I thank you for his yes. I thank you for what you've done in his heart. I thank you for what you are doing in his family. Lord, I thank you that you've given him ears to hear. Lord, I thank you for all of the hard work and all of the time seen and definitely unseen that he's put into this church out of love and obedience to you, but also out of love and obedience um, to the call that you placed on him. Lord, we're thankful that um, through your spirit, there is peace and unity, and we love it. We love that we're able to still kind of walk side by side as family, as brothers and sisters in Christ. And Lord, I ask that you would go before them in this, in this new venture. Lord, I pray that they wouldn't forget that their ultimate call is still to make disciples, to help people, to help those they interact with, to meet, know, and follow you. And Lord, we look forward to hearing and seeing what you're going to do in their lives. We thank you for them. We pray their, your blessings over them. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much, brother. So this fall is going to be a significant fall for us as a church. And I know, like some of you, like, you know, Brandon, you just say that, you get excited about everything, but truly there are some significant things that are happening in the life of this church, um, specifically in the month of August. Starting next week and the weeks to follow, Pastor Chad and his team are going to be providing opportunities for you to engage and potentially re-engage again with a small group community. I want to encourage you, if throughout the last season, the last year, maybe you're in a small group and you disconnected, I want to encourage you as you're going to hear coming from our mouths over and over the next few weeks to engage again in a small group. It is vital for your faith. That's where we grow the most. That's where we feel supported the most is within a small group of believers and a community of believers. I want to encourage you to do that. And it's a very timely time, timely time as well. A little rusty. We're going to shake that off. You know, as we're going to be moving into a new series that I want you to not only be blessed in, that I want you to not only be encouraged in, but I want you to be mindful of being a shepherd in. So for what we're going to do, starting August 22nd through the first Sunday of September, we're going to be in a series that's going to be tackling an issue that is not talked, often, uh, talked about much within the church. We're going to tackle some mental health issues. 
We're going to talk about um, shame and guilt, anxiety and fear and all the things that are wrapped up in that. There are going to be some times we're going to talk about depression and we're going to make it clear that there's parts that we can't handle because our brain is just broken and we need some professional help. But we're going to talk about our spirits and we're going to look at what the scriptures have to say. Now, this is an issue that most of us just kind of sweep under the rug. Like, if we were to be honest, like, when people ask you, we off, more often than not, we never tell the truth. Hey, how are you doing? I'm good. And you want them sort of the fish. It's like you kind of want to, like, say, well, I'm actually not good, but I don't want to tell you that I'm not good because I don't want you to think less of me. So I'm just going to carry this stuff underneath here, and I'm going to pretend that I'm okay. But really what you're doing is like, please, please ask me. I really am not okay. Like, we all wrestle with this at some level. But the reality is we all know people in our lives who are struggling with this. Mental health is a major issue, especially coming out of the in, I should say, we're not out of COVID, but like now that we're like kind of in a different season of it, it's like people are just struggling with it. And we as believers, as the church, we have the answers, we have the solution, and we need to talk about that. We need to address it through the lens of Scripture. And that's why I want to encourage you to not only come for yourself to be blessed and to hear the truth and for God to speak light into these areas, but for you to be shepherding the flock around you. It's so important. And I, and I just wanted to share this. Pastors aren't immune. One of the things that surprised me when I was a senior pastor is I run in some networking circles. And one of them within the free church of churches that are a thousand plus, there's 50 guys in the room. And I remember someone asking the question, how many of you struggle with anxiety or depression? And I was floored. It was like 80% of the group. Because people look at pastors and they go, oh, they're good. They should be all right. And pastors feel that burden. Like, I can't tell people I'm struggling. I have a pastor friend that I know in California, 30 years old. His wife just gave birth to their fifth child. Did she commit a suicide? I mean, it, it's an issue. And scriptures provide hope and light. And so we're going to talk about that. And I want you to hear this. Community is needed. And that's why we're doing that and partnering up with our small groups because we need to be in community. Satan wins when he isolates us. When we aren't vulnerable. When we're not transparent. When we bury shame and we bury guilt and we bury all of these things. God redeems. God restores. And so I want to encourage you to do that. I know it's a little heavy, but I'm also believing that great redemption and great restoration is going to happen because of that. And people are going to find community and they're going to find life because of our obedience of saying, yes, Lord, show me my heart. Yes, Lord, I want to invite people to this who need to know about this. So we are still in this series called... Um, be the movement. And this whole series, this whole idea is to be looking at what does it mean to meet, know, follow Jesus. It's a, it's a journey of understanding that the call to follow Jesus is really one of apprenticeship. It's one of discipleship. And that's why we're in this. And when we look at the gospel of Luke, which is one of the most like exhaustive gospels that we have that show us the life of the ebb and flow of a disciple. These 12 who were called to be with Jesus got to see up close and personal all of the things that Jesus was doing. They got to be with him. They got to experience the authority that he had. They got to experience the compassion. And they started to understand that they too were to carry on this message of the good news of the kingdom of God, that God and Jesus even started to forewarn him, like, hey, I'm going to give you my authority. And he sends him out on like these like little short-term mission trips to cast out the demons and heal the sick and proclaim the good news of God. And you would start to imagine that these disciples would have a load of questions. Jesus, would you teach me this? God, would you show me how to do this? I mean, think about all of the things that we already talked about in these first 11 chapters. He was like a guy like no other, full of compassion. People were drawn to him because he had this beautiful balance of speaking love and grace and compassion and at the same time to be able to speak truth and call out sin where sin was, which is really what we want. 
And he was able to do that, and people were coming because he was speaking with one with authority. He was compassionate, healing the sick, making the lame walk, giving sight to the blind, multiplying loaves and fishes and feeding the masses, casting out demons. Who is this guy? I would be asking the question, Jesus, can you teach me how to cast out demons? Because that looks cool. Jesus, would you teach me how to multiply food? Because I get hungry a lot. Like there would be so many things I'd be like, teach me. And we don't know if they did. I would assume they would. But we only know of one thing for sure that they asked Jesus to teach them. And it's recorded in the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Luke. Lord, teach us how to pray. I find that fascinating. Out of all of the things they could have asked Jesus to teach him, teach us how to pray. It's subtle, but it's all over the Gospel of Luke that Luke is making it clear that prayer was a big deal to Jesus, and Jesus delighted in praying. It's almost as if he enjoyed praying. Who enjoys? Okay, I'm just kidding. Let's just be honest. So I want to show you some things. Look at this in Luke chapter 5. But now even more, the report about him went abroad, and great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. But he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. Luke chapter 6, verse 12. In these days he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued and prayed to God. You see this pattern in his life. It's almost as if Jesus is kind of saying that prayer is more important than sleep. Luke chapter 9, verse 18. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him, and he asked them, who do the crowd say that I am? You always see Jesus praying before something significant happened in the Gospels. In Luke chapter 9, verse 28 through 36. Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter, John, and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And what follows is the story of the transfiguration where Jesus was transformed in the presence of Peter, James, and John. And he comes down the mountain, and the disciples are trying to cast out a demon of the boy who was ill. And Jesus ended up teaching. He's like, oh, this one can only come out through prayer and fasting. And then Luke chapter 11, 1 through 2. The disciples are noticing something different about Jesus' prayer life. I mean, let's not forget, these disciples were people of prayer. They were good Jewish kids. They understood prayer. They were taught how to pray the Shema. In the morning prayer, the evening prayer, the lunch prayer, they learned all the prayers and they prayed all the time. And I'm willing to bet that we are not, they were no different than we were. That it just started to turn into obligation. It started to turn into duty. I mean, imagine now, they're, they're Jewish people in a Roman-occupied area where Jerusalem was supposed to be, you know, the shining city of God, and nothing is happening the way it was. Why pray? Does it even matter? Is he even hearing me? This is, is this just all a religious exercise? This seems so boring, but then they're seeing Jesus praying at every moment. When, even when he's tired, he has a long day. Work was tough. People are asking for needs, 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 needs. And he would spend all night praying because it was a big deal that Jesus And he enjoyed being with the Father. I only say what the Father says. I only do what the Father shows me to do. I want you to see the Father. I'm going to make a way for you to be with the Father. He loved being with the Father. Something about his prayer life intrigued them. I get it. I remember as a kid, I remember our meal prayers Right? I don't know about you, but you're like, have you ever been caught like eating before someone prays? You're like, hey, you can't eat yet. We haven't prayed. And you're like, sorry, <laughs> you know. And then you, the food's in your mouth and you stop chewing because someone's praying. What is that? Or maybe that's just me. I, I actually am of the opinion that God wants us to eat our food while it's hot. Right? But I remember the prayer time in the Ziski household. Come, Lord Jesus, be our guest, and let these guests to us we bless. Amen. Oh, give thanks. It's like we have this cadence and this rhythm, and I had no idea what we were saying. 
And I remember like bedtime prayers, my dad would always pray with me. I'm telling you, it terrified me. It gave me nightmares. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. And if I die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. Uh, Dad? <laughs> I didn't know. And like even growing up in a Lutheran church, like we would do this like, you know, like this volley. The pastor would say something and then we would say something. And he would say something and then we would say something. And then you knew it was over when everybody did the, uh, you're like, pray. I didn't understand it. Even in my own times, I would try, just felt like something you had to do. I, and I felt like it, all it was was like me creating a, a list of issues and coming to the cosmic Santa Claus in the sky saying, here's all my stuff. There you go. I can't tell you how many times I wonder as a pastor, do my prayers matter? Can we be honest? How many of you in this room are just killing it right now in your prayer life? I mean, like, you're absolutely annoyed that we are here because it's interrupting your prayer time. <laughs> Anyone? Let's just be honest. It's, it's like actually embarrassing almost as a Christian to admit that I, I don't know if I know how to pray. Like, I don't even know if it matters. Can I even say that? The disciples are in the same boat. And I think Jesus was so excited that they asked me, he's like, oh, here we go. In fact, have you ever seen The Chosen? You know that episode? No. Luke 11. One of the disciples. One of the disciples comes to Jesus. Lord, teach us to pray. And I bet all 11 were like, thank you for asking. Because I think they all wanted to learn. And Jesus said, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. And in Matthew's version, which is the fuller version, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. So not how we pray. When you pray, say. What we're going to discover in this teaching from verse 1 all the way to verse 13 is that Jesus gives this framework or a template of how to pray and how we should approach God. What is our orientation should be when we come to God? He's also going to teach us to bring certain requests to God and, and he's even going to teach us like how we should pray. Like this should ultimately transform our prayer life. Like we got to start thinking about this a little bit differently. Prayer is not just a thing where we just bring intercessory requests to God, where we go, God, here's this. I pray for Aunt Nellie. I ask that you would get rid of her cold. I pray for the dog. I pray for this. What else should I pray for? I don't know. It's so much more. Prayer life is ultimately life with God. It's, it's ultimately life with God. It's communicating with God. It's communing with God. It's worshiping God. It's understanding God. It's not just talking to God. It's talking to and hearing from God. Paul Miller simply says this in one of his books. Prayer is simply the medium through which we experience and connect to God. But I think, I am convinced that prayer is the weak spot in our faith. Prayer is difficult because prayer is communicating, and communicating is an art form. I was not, and I still am not, that great at communicating. I'm really good at talking, I'm not really great at listening because I always have the solution. Like, prayer is not just me just rambling a bunch of things out to God just to tell God what I'm thinking and what I'm feeling and what I need. Like, when I take my wife out, on a, my beautiful wife on a date, like, the end goal of the date is not to communicate. 
we communicate as a means to the end, which is to experience and know each other better. That's what prayer is. Like if I went on a date and all we did was walk through the honeydew list, I'm out. Or if all I did was talk over her and give solutions to everything that she's saying, I just want you to hear me. I don't need you to solve it. I don't know if you guys have ever heard that. I hear that. She's out. Prayer is life with God. When you pray, say, our Father, our Father. There are four key things that we need to understand that will change and transform our prayer life. First thing we need to understand is believe that God is our Father. This is a question that I want to be right in your face. When you pray, how do you see God? Because this will make or break how you pray. If you do not see God as a good, compassionate father who only does the best and the only brings to you the best in your life, you will not pray. You will see prayer as a burden, as a religious duty, as something that you'll only do in crisis mode. If you don't see God as a father, you will not enjoy prayer. So how do you see God? How do you see him? Do you see him as a distant father? Because like this is a tough concept for a lot of people because we have had distant dads or fathers who have abused us or fathers who have done X, Y, and Z to us. And it's really hard. So this idea of God being a father, we're like, no. But I want to encourage you, dive into that. Let Jesus redeem that because this is the best picture we can understand God in. He's a good father. When you pray, say, Father, and the language here is Abba, Daddy. And because of Jesus, because of the gospel, we are adopted as sons and daughters. We're no longer orphans. We're no longer in a foster care system. We are brought in as sons and daughters with full rights of a family. And he will take complete care of us. Jesus is trying to change the orientation of our minds and our hearts when we pray. When you pray, how do you see God? Do you see him as someone you have to convince to hear you? God, let me, let me get my act together because I know you won't hear me until this is all right. How many of you are afraid of God when you pray? That he's just going to go, see this? Distant and somehow you got to try to convince him to come near and hear you. How do you see God? This is so important. Jesus enjoyed praying because he knew the Father. And he's trying to teach us this is radical. No religion, no religion. religion. All religions have a form of prayer, but no religion teaches this, that you can address God as dad. That's personal. That's intimate. I love being a father. I love it. I love it. I love it. Some days. <laughs> but one of my favorite things, I'm just being honest, one of my favorite things is coming home, especially if I've been gone for a while. Because, like, they, they hear me, and also you just, like, hear this flock or herd of elephants just running, dad, 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 and but now we got a 13-year-old just kind of like, hey, you take what you get, right? And it's just like, you just feel amazing because they're like, dad's home, dad. I love it. How do you see God? Zephaniah 3 tells us that God, our Father, he rejoices over you. He's so proud of you. He sings over you. He wants to quiet you with this love. The best picture of the father is in the prodigal son story in Luke 15, which we're preaching about next Sunday. When the son who was lost and shamed and basically told the dad, I want nothing to do with you, I wish you were dead, starts to come home, the father sees him in distance and runs after him and embraces him and the son can't even get a word out of his mouth. Do you see God that way when you pray? Because I, I'm telling you, if you do, it will radically change your prayer life. When you say, when you pray, say, Father. John Tyson, I love this quote. It's a long quote, so I have it on the screen for you. Unless you break the strongholds of false images of God in your mind, you'll never be drawn to prayer. 
drawn to prayer. I want to pray. The angels have been locked in a room with God for thousands of years, and they still haven't gotten past the word holy. Holy, holy, holy. If you're bored with God, you may be the person who's boring. Or it could be that you're just distracted by trivia in our culture. When you break through that boredom, you'll be drawn to the glory of who God really is. When you pray, say, Father, Father. But not only that, Father who's in heaven. This is a beautiful word. And it's a word that we kind of have to think differently about because in our Western mindset, in our culture today, what comes to your mind when you think of the word heaven? Typically, nine out of ten times, it's immediately, oh, it's that place you go when you die. You know, the cloud city in a galaxy far, far away. Hallmark angels playing harps. Like, we, we just don't understand that. But when they heard the word heaven, they heard it differently because actually the Greek word is in the plural, so it's in the heavens. So they understood as heaven as something that's out there like high and exalted in that perfect place where the Father's will is completely obeyed. But it also holds a different connotation where the word heavens also speaks of air. Our Father who's in the air in the heavens, which is to play off of this tension of like he's out there in heaven, but he's also as near as the air we breathe. He's as close to you as the air in your lungs. Our Father who's in heaven, you're, you're out there. You're so high. You're so above, but yet you're so close. How many of you pray and you're going, he's so far away. God, I don't even know where you are. You're distant. You're absent. God, do you even hear me? This is radical thinking that God would be so close. When you are a follower of Jesus, when you profess Jesus as Lord and Savior, the Holy Spirit takes up residence inside you. Our Father, who art in heaven, like, you're there and you're here. This is the omnipresence of God. We think sometimes God is so far away. Where are you? Even the psalmist, David even says that, God, where are you? We get this feeling like he's turned his back against us. But really the issue is not so much him as it is us. We're so often distracted by that little evil device called a phone. What did we do back in the day when we didn't have phones and you're waiting in line at a grocery store? We got impatient. <laughs> like Nowadays, it's like, oh, extra time. You know, like, how many of you immediately, this has no meaning to anything I'm saying, but it's fun. How many of you stop at a traffic stop, like at a stoplight, and immediately pull out your phone just to look because you got extra time? Yeah, no one. Yeah. Liars. We're so distracted that we miss those opportunities to realize that God is here. We're more affluent than ever before. We have so much more money to do so many things to fill in all of the margin. We can go on this trip. We can go here. We can buy this. We can do this. We miss all those moments to realize that God is near. Or maybe all of those blessings have created a bunch of idols and false lovers that when we come to him, we are like, where are you? And God's like, I've been here the whole time. Where are you? Listen, I, I love this. I heard it this week. God does not know how to be absent. God doesn't know how to be absent. It's, that's against his nature. If God was absent, he wouldn't be God. He's omnipresent. God does not know how to not be close. He's close. Like, look at what Jesus is saying to his disciples. When you pray, say, Father, Dad, you're out there, but you're so close. Hallowed be your name. How many, of you, how many of you used that word in a sentence this past week? Hallowed. Your outfit is hallowed. Don't ever use that. You'll be single your whole life. Like, it's, it's, it's a beautiful word, really. And the word, like, we immediately have a sense, like, is it holy? Yes, but it's deeper than holiness. And again, we have to think of it through the scriptural definition, because when we think of holy, we oftentimes equate holiness only with morals. 
Oh, aren't you holier than now? We think of like, oh, you're better than me. You're so holy. Like that's what we think, but it's, it's greater than that. Like the word hallowed is a sense of enjoyment, of beauty. Hallowed be your name. Your name is beauty. It's unique. It's special. There's nothing in comparison to it. It's unparalleled. It's a, it's a term of worship. Psalm 28 or 29 verse 2. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. Like Jesus, when he prayed and addressed God as Father, he was caught up in the beauty of who he is, of the Father. In his presence, there is fullness of joy, fullness of life, fullness of peace. This speaks of contentment. This speaks of love and and, and excitement. He wanted to be with him. I mean, like, what religion teaches this? When you pray, you address God as dad. And not only is he altogether different, but he's as near as the air in your lungs, and he's beautiful. Center your hearts and your joys and your desires on him. Hallowed be thy name. Tim Keller, another long quote, says this. To hallow God's name is to have a heart of grateful joy towards God. And even more, a wondrous sense of his beauty. Consider how different this is from the normal way we use prayer, to get things. We may believe in God, but our deepest hopes and happiness reside in things as in how successful we are or in our social relationships. We therefore pray mainly when our career or finances are in trouble or when some relationships or social status is in jeopardy, when life is going smoothly and our truest heart treasures seem safe, Ouch. It does not occur to us to pray. Seldom or never do we spend sustained time adoring and praising God. We know God is there, but we tend to see him as a means through which we get things to make us happy. For most of us, he has not become our happiness. When you pray, say, Father, the one in heaven, hallowed be your name. I'm setting my heart on you. I'm setting my mind on you. You're my desire. I worship you alone. You alone are my joy. You alone are my delight. You alone are my treasure. He's orientating the heart. And then the prayer shifts to intercession, to making requests. And the first request he teaches us to make is, your kingdom come. Your, your kingdom come. I find this fascinating. How many of you truly wrestle with the thought, do my prayers actually matter? Do they change things? Scriptures give us attention. Yes and no. God is sovereign. God will do what God wants to do. And yet we're given human responsibility. We are moral agents. We are to partner with God in bringing the kingdom of God. It seems to me that Jesus is implying by asking us or telling us to pray, pray for his kingdom to come, that our prayers actually matter. That our prayers actually change things. That our prayers are actually the most effective tool in building his kingdom. Your kingdom come. He's telling us there are some things that happen when we pray, and there are some things that won't happen if we don't pray. You pray this. I know some of us wrestle with that. We're like, what's the point of praying? God is sovereign. Like, you ever read that in Matthew 6 where he says, like, you know, you bring your request and your needs to God, and he already knows what you need ahead of time. And I'm like, why do I even need to say anything? If you know what I need ahead of time, won't you just do it? I don't know. Someday we might know, but we do know there's a tension that we're invited to pray and to trust him to bring about the good. When you pray, say, Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come. This tackles I would say the four main issues we have in prayer. 
our view of God. How do we see God? It tackles the issue, is God distant? Is he near or far? Is God boring? Can God actually satisfy the desires of my heart? And does prayer make a difference? Absolutely. When you pray, say. Why do we pray? Because it's life with God. We partner with him. We build his kingdom through that way. What do we pray for? Anything and everything. You pray for the kingdom to come. You pray for his will to be done on earth because there are so many different wills and competing for our tensions on earth. We pray for his will to be done here. We pray that God leads us in the path of righteousness to keep us away from falling into the traps of temptation, to keep us safe, to deliver us from the evil one. He calls us to pray and make requests, intercession for our daily bread, which is ultimately Jesus. But this concept of bread means your needs and your desires to forgive us our sins so that we can forgive others, make requests that deal with relationships so that the gospel can be on display with reconciliation and peace and unity. But start with the orientation and these things start to come and you actually get excited to pray these things. But I want to dig into real quick. I want to encourage you this week, study verses 5 through 13. Study it. Because it's, it's the the explanation of this teaching. In verse 5, he's teaching this parable, and actually it's great comedy. Because now he's going to say, this is how you pray. When you pray, you say these things, here's the framework, but here's how you pray. It's pure comedy. Which of you as a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. I'm going to tell you this right now. If you come to my house and you knock on my door at midnight and you ask for bread, you're no longer my friend. <laughs> I mean, like, think about this, okay? This is, this is like a, a ridiculous, this is a shameless ask. Because like at that time, to have one loaf of bread, you only had a loaf of bread for the next day. And this guy's coming asking for three. This is like luxury. This is like way over and beyond. At midnight. Man, like I remember... Okay, for those of you who've had little kids, like, oh my goodness, putting kids down to sleep, whoo, so frustrating. Like, you ever have those moments where like, okay, our second kid, especially our second, you finally get him to sleep and you put him in the crib and you're like, and all of a sudden there's just this little, you're like, back in the day, they all slept in the same bed. And here's this guy, he's knocking on the door, and I can imagine a dad being like, go away. My dad finally got him to sleep. It took all night, now they're sleeping. Would you just go away? And the guy's like, hey, I'm not going till you give me three loaves of bread. Would you just go get out of here? No, I'm not leaving till you give me what I want. Could you go? Stop. Fine. You know who's really good at doing that? Kids to their parents. Dad, can I? Dad, can I? Dad, can I? Dad, can I? Yes! <laughs> Sorry, it's not like it's happened recently. <laughs> the picture, Father, who's teaching this? Jesus, when you pray, say, Father, you're coming as a child. You bring your request. It doesn't matter how ridiculous it is. You allow the Father to discern that but you bring any and every request to him and you keep asking. You wear that person out till he, till he finally gives you what you want. Doesn't that feel odd that the God of the universe is telling us to pray that way? It's almost as if God is saying, please pester me. Don't stop. Or maybe there's something to persistence that is key to praying. He doesn't stop. And Jesus says, I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he's his friend. That's not why he's going to give him bread. They're no longer friends at this point. But yet because of his impudence, which is his shameless audacity, his bold persistence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, 
This is in the present indicative in the Greek. Ask and keep asking. And it will be given to you. Seek and keep seeking and you will find. Knock and keep knocking and it will be open to you. For everyone who asks receives. And the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? To which any decent father would say, yeah, you're right, I wouldn't do that. Or if he asked for an egg, would give him a scorpion. Well, one, my son never asked for an egg, but I wouldn't do that anyways. Or you can even reverse that. If your son asked for a scorpion, would you give him a scorpion? Again, if you're a decent dad, you should say, no. If you then, even the decent good dads who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, say it with me. How much, oh, come on, come on, let's try that again. How much more will the Father give the Spirit to those who ask? How much more will the Father give of himself, the Spirit? How much more? You see the promise? Keep going. Keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking. Don't stop, don't stop, don't stop. Because it's ultimately this picture of a child and a father. How much more? Friends, here's what I've concluded as I was working on this. And I was just thinking to myself, I was like, why would Jesus teach this parable? It's such an odd parable. Jesus is trying to drive a point home. And then there's three reasons why I think he's doing that. One is because we don't ask. We don't ask. I think the greatest tragedy in the church is not unanswered prayers, but prayers that are left unasked. Scripture says you don't have because you don't ask. Sometimes we're like, I don't want to bother God with this small little issue. Sometimes we wonder if this desire is right or not. So I don't know if I should pray for this or not. I don't know if I should pray for this. You, you know what I'm saying. Like how many prayers that you don't ask? Or maybe you say, you've grown accustomed to saying, I got to do it. I can do it. I can work this out. I can figure it out. I, 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 I. But this parable is meant to teach us that we're supposed to come to God like a child coming to a father and asking for anything, even if it's ridiculous. My son loves to ask for ridiculous things, and I have no problem saying no, but I'm glad that he says, Dad, can we buy a Ferrari? He'd be like, no, I'm a pastor. <laughs> but it's, I want him to ask me, Dad, can we buy a jet? No. That'd be cool, but no. Ask. You are a dependent child. Ask the Father. Unasked prayers, unasked prayers are a significant problem. Some of you are in busted relationships. Some of you need healing. Some of you need something. And you're like, I need to have an ask the Lord for it. Ask him. Pray for it. And the second thing I'm convinced the reason why Jesus is driving the point home is because we ask with timidity and not with shameless audacity. We kind of dance around it with eggshells. God, I don't know if it's, if it's your will. I don't know. If maybe you're good. I'm not sure. God, I don't know if it's the right thing. But if could you, would you? I don't know. Maybe. But there you go. I love my kids. I'm not bashing them. But none of them do that. <laughs> they ask with shamelessness exactly what they want when they want it, all the time. That's how we're supposed to approach God. Don't ask with timidity. We are supposed to be the one knocking on the door, right? Like, where we pray, we'll often be like, hey, are you awake? Oh, you're sleeping? Okay, I'll come back tomorrow. Isn't that how we pray? But Jesus says, nope. Keep doing it. I don't care if you wake up the kids. You keep doing it until you get what you want. How does that change how we pray? That's shamelessness right there. And the third reason why I believe Jesus taught this parable is because we give up way too soon in prayer. We pray once, maybe twice. We might give it a month and we don't see what we expect. It's one of those points where I can't remember who said it, but God's delays aren't, aren't God's denials. 
I think of a couple in our church. We heard the story on Easter. Brenda and Raymond Lucky, she prayed for over 50 years for her husband to profess faith in Jesus. 50 years. Don't give up. I don't know, I can't tell you the why on all of this, but all I can tell you is that our Lord and Savior, who was dependent upon prayer, who enjoyed prayer, said, if you want to pray, this is how you pray. And so church, friends, I want to encourage you, this is how you pray. Hebrews 4, verse 16. I want to end with this. And this is where some of you need right now. Some of you are right at this spot. You need to remember who God is. He's our father. He's our dad. He's a good dad, full of compassion and mercy. He'll never leave you, never forsake you. You'll never be an orphan again. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace because of Jesus that we may receive mercy and find grace and help in our time of need. As we conclude this time, let's remember this, that Jesus made a way to the Father. He taught us how to pray, how to approach the Father. Jesus is 100% God. He's saying, come on, come on, keep asking, keep seeking. Keep knocking, keep persevering, keep at it. In a room this size, there are so many needs, so many wants, so many desires, so many unasked prayers, and yeah, unanswered prayers. But don't be discouraged. Approach the throne of grace in your time of need. Jesus, thank you so much for your word. Your word that is alive and active. Thank you for showing us the heart of the Father. Lord, I pray that our weak spot in our faith, which for most of us is prayer, Lord, will become our strength. Lord, may we pray like your son Jesus did. Father, I ask that you would continue to meet us right where we're at. Lord, that when we pray to you, you would show us the joy, the beauty, the peace, the freedom, the righteousness that is found in communing with you. God, forgive us for our prayerlessness. Forgive us for seen it as a burden. Lord, you knew and you know we don't understand it. So Lord, would you renew this desire? We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.